1: Don Quixote is a hilarious book. As I was reading it, I couldn't believe something 400 years old could make me laugh so much. But despite being so funny, it's also an incredibly brilliant examination of the nature of literature.
0: It's a book about books. It's a book about what it is to be obsessed with books and to be transformed by your relationship to fiction. My name is Timothy Hampton. I'm a professor of comparative literature and French at the University of California, Berkeley.
1: Don Quixote was written by Spanish author Miguel de Cervantes. He wrote it in two parts. Part one was published in 1605, and part two, 10 years later, in 1615. The story is centered around a middle-aged guy named Alonso Quijano, who is obsessed with stories of brave medieval knights.
0: You know, it's the story of, uh, of a guy who was a sort of impoverished aristocrat in 17th century Spain, who uh, doesn't have to work for a living and spends his days uh, locked in his library reading what at the time were called romances of chivalry, which are a kind of almost comic book-like genre of literature that proliferated in the 16th century.
1: These types of stories were always popular, but they gained new traction with the invention of the Gutenberg printing press in the 15th century.
0: We often think of the invention of movable type as being a great thing for, you know, the classics and these kinds of things. But there was also a massive uh, proliferation of what we would today call popular literature. And one of the most popular forms were these romances of chivalry, which were stories about knights traveling around the world on, on winged horses, fighting against dragons and giants, and so on and so forth. Don Quixote spends his days absorbed uh, in 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 reading these kinds of stories. And at a certain point, he decides that he too must act And so it raises the very, the big ethical question of, you know, what does it mean to act in the world? And what does it mean, and and on what basis do do you begin to act, right? And so he suddenly says, I am Don Quixote, I will become Don Quixote, and he turns himself then into a knight errant.
1: Don Quixote goes on all sorts of misguided adventures, fighting a windmill, jousting with a flock of sheep, and usually losing these battles in humiliating fashion.
0: But those are only the opening episodes, because as the novel unfolds, it becomes extraordinarily profound in its meditation on what it means to read, what it means to embrace a fiction, um, what kinds of of codes we use to determine our lives.
1: In Don Quixote, Cervantes created a protagonist who was out of step with his own time.
0: Don Quixote's idea is that the code of chivalry, of medieval chivalry, as he understood it, is the only thing that can save the world. And he needs to embrace that code as a way of going out and as he calls it, rescuing, rescuing widows, and helping orphans, and killing bad guys and helping good guys. And so we have this interesting instance of of a literary character who is out of touch with his times, but as the novel unfolds, it becomes clear, is really the only force for good in the world. Everyone around him is corrupt, violent, venal, deceitful, and he is the beacon of goodness. So we have this kind of problem of, I mean, it's an existential problem, which is what do you do when you're out of touch with your times, but you're the only good guy around? And that's one of the things that Cervantes invented, and I think that's extraordinary. And as I say, it comes out of too much reading
1: welcome to writ large a podcast about how books change the world i'm zachary davis for this episode i sat down with professor timothy hampton to discuss miguel de cervantes's don quixote what can you say about cervantes's life arc and kind of what, what's going on in spain at, at
0: this time so he was born in 1547, which is right in the center of the 16th century. And of course, the 16th century is the is the century that gives us really the foundations of the modern world, right? It's the, it's, it's, it's the first century of printing. It's the century of the rise of colonialism. It's the century of, of the beginnings of the nation state and so on and so forth, right? So he's born right in the middle of the 16th century his father was a, was a surgeon uh, who was also a barber. They were the same thing because they used razors to cut you open. Uh, there's some evidence that he might have been from a what the Spanish call a converso family, which is to say a, a, a Jewish family that had converted to Christianity, though nobody knows for sure whether that's true. Um, he was educated in a Jesuit school, went to Madrid, um, and uh, at, In 1569, he seems to have wounded someone in a duel, after which he left Madrid and found his way to Italy. Cervantes
1: settled in Rome and got a job working for an aristocratic Italian bishop.
0: So he saw the last gasp of what we would call the Italian Renaissance, or the the beginnings of the kind of Baroque period in in Rome, Um, and uh, eventually found himself uh, signing up to be an officer in the uh, Spanish Navy. And this was at the moment of the great battle in 1571 of the, of Lepanto in which he was wounded and lost the use of one of his hands. And so he makes a big deal of this throughout his later life that he was a, basically a one-handed guy and, and was only able to, to write and was not able to do anything else. Presumably his left hand. <laughs> left hand. Yes. Um, and so, um, uh, after this, he goes back to, to Rome and uh, a, a bit later he finds his, he's on his way back to Spain and his uh, ship is captured by Ottoman pirates. and he's sold into slavery or sent into slavery in Algiers and held for ransom, which is basically you know a kind of cottage industry in the, in the 16th century. And uh, he was there for five years before he was ransomed by a charitable Christian organization brought back to Spain. And he lives out his life trying to do a number of things. He works as a tax collector for a while. He has a lot of health problems. Uh, He's thrown into debtor's prison and he writes various things. He writes uh, a pastoral novel, a, a novel about shepherds. He tries to write a lot of plays. Um, he wrote about 20 plays. None of them made him any money. I mean, it was, you couldn't really make money uh, on the theater in, this, in, the, in the 16th and 17th century, but he wrote a number of plays. Um, and in 1605, he publishes this strange thing called Don Quixote, which is the first part of Don Quixote, of the novel that we have today, uh, which immediately uh, makes him famous. Uh, shortly after that, he published um, a collection of tales what are, some, what are called the exemplary novels, which are sort of novellas, uh, some of which are very beautiful. And then in 1615, he published um, the second part of Don Quixote. Um, so, the, so the novel, there are 10 years between the first half of the novel and the second half. And he dies in 1616.
1: For a while, it was believed that Cervantes died on the exact same day as William Shakespeare but because the spanish calendar and the english calendar were slightly misaligned that's actually not
0: true but it it's a great idea uh and and it and it sh- it should be true given the I- extraordinary um similarities between those two authors they're both reflecting on a changing world they both seem to have a value system that really privileges old ideas of kingship and virtue that seem to be disappearing under the pressures of modernity. So Shakespeare and Cervantes you know, kind of natural pairs, uh, a natural pairing along with the French philosopher Montaigne, who's also pretty much their contemporary, a little bit older. Um, But those three authors always seem to me at least to be speaking to each other, even though they never met.
1: Cervantes entered the Spanish literary scene at an exciting time.
0: So in Spain, there's a, there are a couple of things that are worth thinking about. There's a heavily centralized court society. So there's a, there are a lot of court, courtly writers who write for the king, about the king. Uh, and But you also have a very lively public theatrical scene. So there's not only Calderón de la Barca, there's another writer named Lope de Vega. They called him the monster because he wrote so many plays. He was so successful, and his plays are, you know, still performed all the time today in the Spanish-speaking world. Um, a number of other play, a number of other playwrights, and a very lively scene of, of. Um, Lyric, lots of lyric poetry, celebrational poetry. I mean, it really is a kind of mirror image of the scene that we think of at the end of the 16th and beginning of the 17th century in England, right? Where you have a public theater with Ben Jonson, Christopher Marlowe, uh, Shakespeare. You have poets like, like Philip Sidney uh, circulating their poetry. Um, you have the beginnings of, pro- of prose fiction. All of those things are happening also in Spain. Um, in, a, in, in a different cultural context, of course, and in a different religious context, obviously. Uh, so uh, so there is a very lively uh, uh, literary world, and there's a very lively, of course, world of the visual arts. Velazquez is painting at this time. El Greco is painting at this time. So we get, uh, uh, and we get the construction in the late 16th century of the Escorial, the palace of the of the king uh, um, outside of madrid so there is a there's an immense amount of uh intellectual ferment and artistic production that's going on at this time
1: spain was also thriving politically
0: spain had ruled the world um in 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 the mid-16th century there was the uh treaty of Tordesillas between spain and portugal which divided up the world right and and there was the great you know there was the colombian uh, expedition. There was Cortes in Mexico. There were these massive colonialist enterprises in the New World, and all of this silver coming into uh, uh, Spain uh, from South America, principally, uh, that made Spain incredibly rich uh, and um, a big player in uh, in European politics. and And so everything was great. And of course, the Holy Roman Emperor in the early part of the 16th century Charles V, the Habsburg emperor, was also Charles I of Spain. So uh, so Spain was riding high, and by the end of the 16th century, everything had turned bad. Uh, there was the unfortunate military expedition against England, the famous Armada in 1588, which had entered, ended disastrously. There had been bad harvests, the, the, the influx of silver from the New World ruined the Spanish economy basically and caused massive inflation. They had also expelled the Jews and the Arabs earlier in the century, uh, which meant that the merchant class uh, was gone from Spanish society. So you had this very strange, stratified society of peasants who were dirt poor on the one hand, and on the other hand, a kind of idle aristocracy on the other. Um, without the kind of mercantile energy that you find, for example, in England, right? As the kind of uh, counterweight to to Spain, so Spain was in a period of real decadence. Of, it's what in Spanish literature they call desengaño, which means disenchantment. And there's really a sense that that they had been living a kind of dream of glory, of world glory, and now they had woken up from the dream, and they didn't like what they saw. So you could see why Cervantes, at this point, would give us a, a novelistic hero. Who really sees the world as out of joint, as Hamlet would say, and uh, and who wants to return to an earlier ethical code when when men were brave and women were beautiful and dragons were evil and you know there was work to be done and uh, that nostalgic vision, which is one of the things that he's Cervantes bequeathed really to world literature and to to, to Western culture, um, it, it was was very much. Of the moment, in, in it at, at one level.
1: Meanwhile, warfare in Europe was undergoing a radical change.
0: Suddenly, we have wars that in the old days had been fought with swords and lances and maces, where an aristocrat could ride his horse into battle and conk the peasants on the head. Uh, we now have a kind of we now have a warfare based on gunpowder. We have we have guns. We we have we have muskets. We have cannon, and that and that's heavily democratizing because it means that the lowliest peasant can kill the biggest the, the most powerful king with just one shot uh, that causes for, for the aristocracy that's you know the beginning of the end at that point where's the heroism in gunpowder exactly I have wonder I've wondered that many times
1: <laughs> all these changes in warfare culture and politics impacted the literature of the day for around 500 years chivalric epics and romances dominated the literary market Instead of Batman and James Bond, you had King Arthur, Charlemagne, and Orlando. Could you sketch a typical romance story featuring one of these brave knights?
0: Yeah, so you have you have a hero who is um, possibly, ri- he's riding through the woods one day, and he meets a, a, a knight in black armor, and the knight challenges him, and then something comes along to interrupt the duel, and one of them is called away, maybe to rescue a damsel, and they meet again 250 pages later, and they have to pick up their duel. In the meantime, maybe one of them gets on a boat, and of course, whenever you get on a boat in literature, there's going to be a storm. So he gets on a boat, and he's blown off course, and the next thing you know, he finds himself in China, or Africa, where he has to defeat a number of evil guys, and um, uh, he uh, he picks up his sword. And, and this is the kind of cliche that we think of also from uh, if we read classical epic poetry of the knight who can pick up his sword and hit somebody on the head and split him down the middle. Um, everybody's usually riding an enchanted horse of some kind, and and they're completely, of course, immortal and completely untouchable. By the early 1600s, these
1: stories had gone out of style for everyone except the hero of today's text, Alonso Quijano. He devours these chivalric stories, and then he decides he's going to go out and live it as Don Quixote. Let's now move to the story itself. Um, How does it begin? So Don
0: Quixote goes crazy. He, he, he takes his look, his horse, whom he calls Rocinante, and he puts, t- he finds an old shield and he puts together a helmet for himself made out of cardboard. And he, he enlists his, uh, his, uh, neighbor, uh, a farmer named Sancho Panza to be a squire and they go out. And, um, in the early episodes, it's very, uh, slapsticky and, uh, and about, I don't know, 10 chapters into the novel, uh, uh, Don Quixote is entering into a battle with a Basque. And Don Quixote has his sword, and the Basque has his sword. And suddenly, the narrative stops. They're both about to conk each other with their swords. And suddenly, the, the narrator of the novel intervenes. And he says, sorry, we have to stop here. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Is Don Quixote going to hit the Basque, or is the Basque going to hit Don Quixote? But we have to stop here because I can tell you that um, this this novel that you've been reading, or this story you've been reading, was a was a manuscript, and that's all I have of the manuscript. It stops right there. So then he goes back. So this is one of these great sort of postmodern moments where. It becomes a novel about making novels, and so he says, "Let me tell you the story." One day, I was in the marketplace in Toledo, and I saw a I saw I, I saw some a, a pile of papers in Arabic, and somebody was reading them and laughing, and I said, "What are you laughing about?" And he said, "Well, I'm reading the story of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza," and I said, "What?" And 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 so I got this guy to translate this manuscript right? And so now he says, I've got the rest of it, and we're going to continue with the story. So we get this kind of self-conscious intervention into the novel where the narrator now is becomes a kind of character, and he tells us how he found the rest of the novel, got it translated. He says, I got it translated from Arabic into, um, uh, into Spanish. There's a great detail because... Uh, 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 he has his negotiation with the guy who's going to do the translation, who's a Moor uh, in the cathedral in Toledo, and he says, and he says, and of course, you know, it's translated into Spanish. But as we know, all Moors are liars, so we can't believe anything that they say, and we can't believe that the story is true. But here's the story. So then he goes on with the story, and so what? What this does is it introduces the problem of making stories into the novel
1: don quixote and sancho continue on with their adventures doing right in the world as they see fit they free slaves help lost lovers and manage to draw a lot of attention along the way
0: as the novel unfolds everybody around don quixote including a a priest and a barber from his home village who show up on the scene everybody says you know this guy's crazy we've got to cure him we've got to get him out of the mountains and back to his home village. So how are they going to do that? You can't go to him and say, Don Quixote, you're crazy, because of course, he refuses to believe that. So the only way they can do this is by pretending to enter into the chivalric world that Don Quixote inhabits. So they cook up a scheme where one of the young people that they've met is going to pretend to be a princess, in the sky or a princess in dis- in in distress and she needs to be freed by a giant or from a giant and so they're going to lure don quixote out of the mountains and they're going to capture him and throw him in a cage and take him back to his village so you can see that as the as the story unfolds everybody around don quixote starts to enter into the world of the fiction and become little don quixotes in each in his own right and they find that this is great fun. They really love pretending that, pretending to be shepherds or pretending to be damsels in distress. It's great fun. So you can see that there's a kind of enchantment of the world where everybody turns into some form of Don Quixote. And, and that's that's where you can see how Cervantes is discovering what a brilliant idea this is, and he can spin it out and spin it out and spin it out.
1: They finally get Don Quixote back to
0: his village, and this concludes part one. The first half of the novel then what happens is something really extraordinary which is that um, between and this is real this is not in the novel the first part of the novel was so successful that between part one and part two during the 10 years when cervantes was working on the second part of the novel somebody else published a sequel to part one a guy named a, a writer named avellaneda cervantes had a
1: few options for what to do He could have stopped writing part two. He could have ignored the unauthorized sequel. But instead, he decided to incorporate this false sequel into his part two of Don Quixote.
0: So um, as part two opens, Don Quixote is back in his village, and Sancho Panza comes to visit him, and a neighbor comes to visit him, and the neighbor says, have you heard? There's a story of The Adventures of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza written by someone called Abay니다 and it's incredibly it's incredibly popular and it tells us that Sancho that Don Quixote was a coward and that Sancho was a liar and that this happened and this happened in which case, case Quixote says no none of that happened so now we have an, we have this kind of marvelous kind of it's like uh, it's like playing three-dimensional chess. Now there are two Don Quixotes running around in the world of the second half of Cervantes' novel. There's the one that we read about, and then there's the one that Avellaneda wrote about, and Don Quixote has to prove to the world that he's the real one and not the one that you read about in the, in the spurious sequel to part 1. So so everywhere he goes he meets these people and they go, "Oh yeah, we read your story. We know all about you." So now Cervantes gets into a really great problem, which is again a very contemporary problem, which is what do you do when you don't have control over your own, as we would say now, you don't have control over your own narrative when somebody else is telling your story for you and you and you need to claim that for yourself. I mean this is a problem in the age of social media. This is the this is the problem that we all face.
1: Quixote has to prove that he is the real Quixote, not that other guy. He has to prove it to everyone else and he has to prove it to himself. As a result, part 2 of the novel is full of these deep existential questions where Don Quixote is interrogating his own identity. Meanwhile, the outside world is calling into question his adventures in part 1.
0: And so now Sancho and Don Quixote have to defend their own story. They have to defend not only themselves against the spurious version of their lives, but they have to defend themselves against the book that we have just read where we've been able to spot these kind of, you know, mistakes, uh, logical mistakes in the in the plot. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. And it simply gets wilder and wilder as, as the story unfolds. And it really becomes a kind of postmodern story, which is all about, you know, multiple narratives and how can you tell which one is which. It's like something out of a, a short story by Borges or, or, you know, some kind of novel by Philip Roth where you have narrators on narrators on narrators.
1: In the end, Don Quixote is challenged to a duel by his neighbor. Just like in part one, the neighbor is trying to get Don Quixote to give up this whole knight-errant thing. So the neighbor says that if he beats Don Quixote, then Don Quixote has to give up being a knight and return to his
0: village. And Don Quixote says, okay. So they fight and Don Quixote is defeated and agrees to go back to his village. So at the end of the novel, they go back to their village. And he, of course, falls ill. And he's on his deathbed and everybody's around him. And and he's about to die. And on his deathbed, he renounces knight -er errantry. And he says, I'm no longer Don Quixote of La Mancha, but I am Alonzo Quijano, the good. Uh, Alonzo Quijano, whose, whose, whose customs and behavior li- have led him to be called the good. And uh, I give up Don Quixote and I give up knight um, errantry and, you know, I am just who I am. And with that moment, with that, he dies. And then the narrator comes in and says, uh, for... Uh me Don Quixote was born and I for him. He his job was to act and mine was to write. And then he hangs up his pen and says, and you know, now it's over.
1: Cervantes enjoyed writing these stories as much as Don Quixote enjoyed living them, but they both knew it couldn't go on forever.
0: As the second half of the novel goes on, he has realized he's increasingly realized that the joke is getting thin and that that you know it, it really isn't working anymore. And um Don Quixote also realizes it. I mean, things happen to him, and and he just realizes that he's too old. He can't be a knight errant. He's, you know, as as virtuous as he may be, and as well intentioned as, as he may be, he's really ineffective. And you know, you can only be ineffective so many times before you realize that you're ineffective, right? And so, um, so he gives it up at the end, and and it's very moving. I mean, I, I I've taught this many times, and I, I once had a student who. Came to me and said, "You know, I cried at the end of the naw. I said, "Don't, Don, Don Quixote, don't do it. Don't give it up. You know, go back out on the road again."
1: But Cervantes and Don Quixote weren't the only ones these stories were for. They provided comfort and escape for readers in Spain at the time.
0: And and there really is this sense that the the world the world of 17th century Spain is so brutal that that chival- fictions of chivalry are the only thing that make it worthwhile, that, that, that make it magical or that give it any kind of ethical or moral contents. And so by the time you get to the end of the novel, you realize that in some way, a life without fictions is really a life not worth living. And that's why Don Quixote dies after he gives it up.
1: So you mentioned at least the immediate influence of part one is that it was a bestseller and made him famous. Um, can you tell us about you know, how it was immediately received and how would you try to convey to our listeners the cultural influence of this book?
0: It's certainly given us a kind of social type, right? Uh, I mean, you know, literature gives us social types. Uh, Machiavelli gives us the type of the Machiavel. Uh, <clears throat> Shakespeare gives us the type of Hamlet, the hesitant uh, actor um, who we've, we see not only in other works of literature, but in real life. So, so Cervantes does give us this type of the kind of mad dreamer who, for all of his madness, nevertheless has a kind of virtue virtue that he exercises and, and, and that puts the rest of the world to shame. So I think that's, I mean, that's just a, a kind of cultural influence. Within the history of literature, I, mean, uh, I think Cervantes does a number of things that are extraordinarily important. He invents this idea of the kind of self-conscious, playful, ironic... Novel, where you have a narrator who interjects, who says, "Dear reader, this is happening, that's happening." And when we think of the the rise of the of of the novel uh, as the great literary genre of the modern age, uh, in in the seventeenth century, and then later, especially in the eighteenth century, for example, in in writers like like Fielding or Lawrence Stern. Um, uh, or Diderot in France, those people were all deeply indebted to Cervantes's uh, uh, innovations in narration that you could you could interrupt the narration and have the narrator come in and become a character. You could do all kinds of stuff. You could introduce a found manuscript in the middle of the story. All of that kind of um, inventiveness, uh, I think is uh, it it goes back to cervantes. and and you know we find it, of course, through all of. Much of modern literature, even up to, to to the current day, if if you read authors like Salman Rushdie or Milan Kundera, who's um, been very uh, explicit about his great debt to Cervantes, um, those right, and then the entire history of the Latin American boom novel that came of age in the 1950s and 60s. We think of writers such as Gar- Gabriel Garcia Marquez. The, the Mexican novelist Carlos Fuentes was obsessed with Cervantes and wrote a book about him, uh, which was, hasn't been translated, but it's a very beautiful book called, Dante, uh, called uh, Don Quixote, or The Critique of Reading. Um, uh, all of those great novelists from Latin America, Bar- Bargaciosa, they're they're really under the sway of uh, Cervantes in many in many ways. There's also interestingly a, a, a strong tradition in in Eastern Europe. I mean, there's a famous statement by Dostoevsky, which they put on the back of the Penguin Classics, so you'll know that it's worth reading, where he says, you know, this is the greatest, the greatest expression of the human soul, right? But it's not only Dostoevsky. Um, there's a great Russian writer named Bulga- Bulgakov, who in his novel The Master and Margarita uh, is full of references to Don Quixote. Thomas Mann was obsessed with Cervantes. Uh, uh, Kafka was obsessed with Cervantes. I mean, even the idea that something
1: deeply comical could also be profoundly philosophical and metaphysical. So you can kind of have the pleasure of two levels. I mean, lo- it's, a, it's just a damn funny story. But is it about the possibilities of
0: reenchanting a fallen modern world that's the question right and in some ways as i mean you're exactly right that it goes right to the heart of the problem of modernity of what it means to live in a disenchanted world where old myths old religions i mean certainly not for cervantes i mean cervantes is you know a deep, deep probably a deeply uh believing Orthodox Catholic, I mean, that's not, not n- nothing close to being an Enlightenment atheist, but I- any, any any moral system or any system of uh, uh, of ethics that relies on a sense of the magical, as, as all religions do, that relies on a sense of the divine, of something that we can't see, you know, wh- when those kinds of systems become questioned, what can put them back? Uh, who can put the genie back in the bottle?
1: Cervantes believed in the power and necessity of fiction. In Don Quixote, he gave us a character who refuses to accept the reality of his own time and decides instead to live in a fictional world of his own making. He does so in order to find a place for himself and because he prefers the beauty and meaning of the world he imagines. But as the story progresses, Don Quixote succeeds in bringing more and more people into his fiction— and thus transforming his imagined vision into a new social reality.
0: It invented a new way of thinking about time, that a character who is out of step with his time can also in some ways be ahead of it, even though he's behind it. Um, I would think that is a a new invention. It changed the way in which we think about our relationship to storytelling. And since we know that human beings Our human beings, because of the way they tell stories about themselves, about the people around them, uh, any work of art that recalibrates how we think about storytelling is changing the world.
1: Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We are a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.